Please remind me also to print out for you uh, something I've mentioned to you before, and maybe I've already given you copies. But uh, Archbishop of Feb's last interview, I've mentioned that before. I meant to give you copies of that, I didn't, but I recall. But Archbishop of Feb's last interview was given in March of 1991. And uh, for years it wasn't translated, it was in French originally. And uh, we now have an English translation of it. And it is very, very revealing about where his mind is at all of this. Uh, after all that he went through, his attempts to negotiate with Rome and all the rest, um, where he came down on it was very instructive. And, uh, and so I think that's definitely worth reading. As I, as you mentioned, this question of rejoining with Rome. And so, well, you know, it's, these are things that concern him and that he thought long and hard about, prayed a lot about. So I think uh, he has a lot to say to us even today. Uh, by the way, if, if the discussion is about this John Salsa uh, video interview, have you all seen that interview? Well, I, I did take the opportunity to listen to it. Uh, I couldn't, uh, you sent me a link to it. Yes. But it gave out after 15 minutes or so. Uh, so I just looked it up on YouTube and just the whole thing. There were a number of things about the uh, the interview that I thought were self-explanatory in the sense mm. that, uh, you know, to understand where Salsa is coming from in his remarks is very important because he makes it very clear from the beginning that he, he took his family to the Pius X Chapel because they moved close to it and it was closer to them, therefore more convenient. And um, he also found certain Novus Ordo liturgies that he'd attended rather offensive. But one thing that comes across very clear, it wasn't a matter of principle in his mind. Mm. Later on, the question even arises in the interview, uh, whether he found the Novus Ordo wrong. Mm. And his answer basically was, no, it's approved. And it's, it's got to be fine. It's just got to be. By definition, it's got to be perfectly Catholic because it was approved. Uh, when he was asked about it, uh, whether it'd be better to attend a, you know, a Novus Ordo when certain things were happening, rather than or to go to a a non-approved traditional mass, Latin mass, they like to call it, um, he said, "Well, neither nor. It's a false dichotomy." He said because the 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 Novus Ordo Mass, the things you're describing happening are not canonical, they're not approved, and therefore... <clears throat> but everything in his book was whether it was approved or not. Even the question of whether someone should go to the traditional Mass if it's available. They didn't call it that, they called it the Latin Mass. Um, for him, it all came down to whether or not the bishop said it was okay to go. So if one bishop says it's not okay to go, you can't go. If the neighboring bishop says it's okay to go, you can't go. It's all legalism. It's all straight legalism. And it's all based upon what he says repeatedly, is the church is a juridical society, is a juridical society. Well, of course the church is a juridical society, but that's not the nature of the church. The nature of the church is what Christ himself gave the church. To say it's a juridical society means the church has laws. 
That's all. But those laws have to conform to the purpose for which the, the society was founded by Christ. If the laws are at variance with the, the purposes for which Christ established the church, the laws are wrong. They're human laws, and human law can be at variance with divine law, with divine positive law. Um, he doesn't even address that. He doesn't even address that question. It doesn't even exist for him. And that's the problem, see? So anybody who was raised as a traditional Catholic who would listen to that interview would say, okay, well, well he's coming from a very different angle. Because he's not even allowing for the question of whether there's something wrong with the new mass. But I know there is something wrong with it. A traditional Catholic, if he's a you know, paying any attention anywhere along the line. We have to say, well, first of all, I don't agree with his fundamental premises that it's merely a matter of taste and preference on his part that he would go to the Latin Mass. I don't agree with his fundamental premises that because the church is a juridical society of law, that human law trumps divine law and that you have to follow the human law no matter what, regardless. I don't agree with his fundamental premise that there's nothing really wrong with the new mass, with the changes, as long as they're approved by the modern bishops, um, who are Francis's appointments, largely, you know? So the, the bottom line for him would be, well, if it's okay with Francis, it's okay with me. That's what makes it okay. That's what makes it right or wrong, if Francis approves it. Ultimately, Francis, Francis cardinals, and Francis bishops, if they approve it, then accept it without question. That is not, that's not Catholic. Um, he doesn't even understand the significance of Catholic tradition. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's more or less non-existent in his, uh, in his interview. The question of Catholic tradition and what Catholic tradition demands and the authority of Catholic tradition. And the fact that the church as a juridical society must draw her jurisprudence from Catholic tradition doesn't even enter into it with him. And that's, this is, I just don't know what he would have done growing up in Hitler's Germany. Uh, if. Hey, if, if the Führer says, the Führer says this is okay, I mean, don't question it. Right? So the, the Germany is a juridical society. You know, signing the law, the Hitler was, became the chancellor legally, was named the chancellor by Franz Joseph. So, I mean, he's legitimately the, the kid chancellor, and I mean, you know, he's, he's in charge of Germany. So, don't question that. It, it is a very scary mentality, especially in light of the last 200 years of human history. Uh, but he is a lawyer, and um, he can't seem to see beyond that to the most fundamental principles. So when you look at these questions that arise here, uh, what is supplied jurisdiction? Well, you, of course, the question really um, uh, starts with what is jurisdiction? And uh, jurisdiction is the right to uh, to actually act in the name of the church. Really. 
the right to act in the name of the church and uh, jurisdiction can be uh, uh, delegated jurisdiction or it can be ordinary jurisdiction. Ordinary jurisdiction comes with a certain office, like the papacy, right? Like the episcopacy. There's certain. No, well, even even there are many bishops who don't have ordinary jurisdiction. That's true. Um, the church tries to uh, entertain a kind of pious fiction in a way by giving any newly consecrated bishop uh, a diocese, even if it's a diocese that doesn't even exist in reality. For example, for example, Archbishop of Feb was given uh, the archbishopric of Sinida in Phrygia. Sinida in Phrygia has not existed on the map for hundreds of years now. But it was an ancient sea, a title, and so, you know, you have bishops who are appointed to diocesan sees, uh, such as Covington, such as Cincinnati, which is an archdiocese, you know. And when somebody is appointed, uh, is consecrated a bishop, then uh, he's not automatically given any real jurisdiction over souls or territory. He can be appointed to that. He has to be given that as a separate act. He's a consecrated a bishop, and he is a bishop. But he can be a bishop of no uh, with no jurisdiction over any place or any people. <laughs> there are a lot of bishops like that. In the Vatican right now, I mean, for years and years in the Curia, there were bishops. There were no dioceses. They were not in charge of anything, really. They might have been in involved in the government of the church and the curial offices. But, um, you know, so not every bishop, by virtue of the fact that he becomes a bishop, has any real ordinary jurisdiction. When a bishop is appointed to a diocese, he's actually given responsibility, or therefore authority over a certain territory. I mean, there's a, an actual a physical boundary to the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. There's a physical boundary which defines uh, when you're within the Diocese of Covington, right? You cross the street and you're not there. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and any Catholic who resides within those territorial, territorial boundaries of a diocese is therefore subject to the bishop of the place, right? So ordinary jurisdiction. Uh, the Pope is the Bishop of Bishops insofar as his uh, jurisdiction extends to everywhere, right? uh, every Catholic soul uh, throughout the whole world uh, at that time of his papacy. Uh, bishop's jurisdiction is ordinary jurisdiction. Um, but as I say, some of them have real jurisdiction over real living people in real territories. Uh, geographically, and others just have a kind of title, uh, which indicates um, a certain dignity of the bishop as having some kind of a court ordinary jurisdiction, but uh, you know, of, of actually no place and no one existing at the time. The interesting thing is that there are bishops who have no real jurisdiction over any place or any one. But there are priests who have ordinary jurisdiction over real people 
and over real places. You think, well, wait a minute, how can priests have the jurisdiction that come with that? Well, when you turn your attention not to dioceses, but to religious orders, you find that not only are there religious orders that actually have as their abbot general and their superior general, that is the top person in their order, uh, someone who's not a bishop, who's simply a priest, but you have religious orders such as the Jesuits, which by their own law forbid a bishop from being the head of the order. A bishop cannot be, according to the laws of the or of the Company of Jesus, that the actual statutes and constitutions of that religious order. A bishop cannot be the head of the order. But whoever is the head of the order is, is only a priest. And so it is even to this day in the Novus Order. Um, and the reason why St. Uh, Ignatius Loyola established it that way in writing the Constitution was that he did not want any of his uh, priest members of the Society of Jesus seeking ecclesiastical advancement, period. So they're, just, they're priests. But the odd thing is, as the superior generals of the order of Jesuits, those superior generals historically had ordinary jurisdiction over every single member of the Jesuit order, 40,000 people throughout the entire world, wherever they were, mission territories or their home diocese. And the members of the Jesuit order were subject to their superior general, and they were not subject to the local bishop. No matter where they were in the world, they were not subject to the local bishop. They were, they were answerable to the superior general, who was not a bishop, he was a priest. It's kind of interesting. People don't really understand necessarily how that works in the church. But, you know, they, the people use the word jurisdiction and abuse the word jurisdiction and throw it around like, you know, they knew what they were talking about. Often they don't. And they don't know uh, what rules apply to it historically, I mean, traditionally in the church. But jurisdiction basically comes down to the right and, of course, the responsibility, because the two of them are together, to act in the name of the church. And um, a bishop has, of a diocese has ordinary jurisdiction. He appoints pastors then. He divides his diocese up into parishes, which again have geographical limits. Uh, so many neighborhoods from this street to that street, you know. Um, and uh, this constitutes the, the border of the, of the parish. And the souls within that parish, who reside within that parish, are actually um, subject to the local pastor as a representative of the bishop. And that is called delegated jurisdiction. Uh, so just by way of example, Another, another, just by way of example, to kind of give you a sense of what the church means by jurisdiction. Uh, to go back to the religious orders, you have in orders, religious orders, you have different kinds of religious orders. You have orders of friars, preachers, you have um, mendicant orders, uh, friars, preachers, like the, the Dominicans and the 
and the um, Franciscans really were mendicant workers. They, they begged uh, for their bread. Of course, you had the old religious orders, the oldest of the Benedictines in the West. And um, they had the Norbertines, who were not considered monks, but were considered canons. I was a member of that religious order for six years. Um, so there are very clearly defined religious orders. And then whatever you find outside of the religious orders in terms of religious life, you've got to find as congregations, and there are two different things. The vows are different. The effect of the vows is something different too. Uh, the rigid, the strict, strictness of the vows and so on. But I won't go into all that right now. Too much, you know, this, this is something of a complex question about how the church actually employs uh, the jurisdiction that is given ultimately, that was given originally by our Lord to his apostles, essentially is what we're dealing with. That divine commission that our Lord gave to his apostles, has come down to us as jurisdiction, which is considered to be part of the magisterium. Now you think of the magisterial authority of the church as being teaching authority, such as teaching doctrine. After all, magister means a teacher. And so we think of magisterium as being pronouncing dogma. Uh, and on the other hand, condemning error and heresy. And it is that, it is that too. But our Lord also gave to his apostles not only the command to preach the gospel, but to instruct them, to instruct all mankind on the things that our Lord had ordered us to do. And that has to do with morals and our conduct. And knowing that, that that has to do with jurisdiction, which is a governing power, a governing power. You say, okay, well now I can understand why that's joined together under the general head of magisterium, because the magisterium of the church is infallible in teaching faith and morals. Faith, what must be believed, and morals, what must be done in practice. And so, uh, because the, they, both of those refer to the church's teaching authority, they are joined usually under the same heading in magisterium. Uh, now, there is a third power, though, as you know, that Christ gave the church, and he expressed that in the second command he gave, going therefore baptizing all nations. And that is the power uh, of, as I told you before, uh, justifying souls, individual souls from sin, and then sanctifying them by grace, ultimately for the sake of glorifying them in heaven. I mean, that's the ultimate goal of ours. Now, if you, if you were to examine those three powers that our Lord gave, you'd see that that sanctifying, justifying and sanctifying power is the ultimate power. It is the ultimate power. What do I mean by that? Well, the teaching of what we are to believe, the truth, is all very important. The teaching of what we are to do in terms of morality, right and wrong, is extremely important. 
But both of those things are really directed to, to the justification and the sanctification of soul, which the priestly power is all about, right? The power of holy orders is the power to administer the sacraments. And that is why, as I mentioned to you last time, in the Code of Canon Law, it ended by saying, when it ended with 2,414, canons, 2,414 canons said that the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls. This is exactly what they were saying here. You know, the whole point of the church, the whole point of Christ, the point of the incarnation was the salvation of souls. So we have to keep that in mind when we come to this matter of supply jurisdiction. Because we have to say that, yes, uh, ordinarily uh, the right and the power and the responsibility to speak in the name of the church uh, to command jurisdiction, to command what we are to do, is what jurisdiction is. I mean, you, you recognize the word juris, from use juris, meaning right or law, not just legis or lex, a law, individual law, but a use, the overall big question of the rights involved in law, because law is about securing rights that you have from God. And uh, of course, ultimately the rights of God. And um, so use is that word that is higher and more general than just lex. Because lex is an application of the use, which means starting with the, the fundamental rights we have uh, as Christians, as baptized Catholics and so on. And so juris uh, of the law and dicere means to speak. And so to speak of the rights uh, of which the law actually is an application. So it's actually a higher concept even than just lex, like even than canon, which is a, a lex, a canon is a law, a law of the church. So um, in any case, um, again, you know, the very concept of the church is very important to understand what this power is that she has and where she received it and what it's for is essential to understand how she regards it. So now ordinarily one receives that either by ordinary jurisdiction or by delegated jurisdiction, okay? Is there any other way in which one can receive the power, the authority, even the responsibility to exercise jurisdiction? And the answer is yes. The question is, how do we know? The answer is because the church herself says so. And the answer is how do we know how do we know that? Because you look back and you read in the tradition of the church and all of her approved theologians and the church's statements herself, she speaks of supply jurisdiction. Her very law, her very canon law allows for it, and it is actually written into the law. Which is very interesting because you know if you read codes of civil law. Civil laws do not often raise the question of exceptions to the law and say, well, there are circumstances under which this law would not apply. <laughs> you know? um, and of course, you can't spell out all the circumstances. But canon law, the church law, does that. And the church law actually spells out 
that there is a thing, such a thing as a supply jurisdiction. And it, it really is a canonized principle of moral theology and sacramental theology of the church that she officially recognized. There is such a thing as supply jurisdiction. And she explains what supply jurisdiction is. Supply jurisdiction is where the, the authority to act comes directly from the church itself without the intervention of any human power. The church itself grants the jurisdiction to act for the sake, so the sake of the salvation of souls. As I say, it's, it's, a, it's a hard, fast principle. Nobody who knows anything about it could honestly deny it uh, or question the fact that it does exist. All they can do is argue that it applies or it doesn't apply. But they can't argue that there's no such thing. The church uh, it has the ability to supply. Why? Because Christ has given that authority to the church through the apostles. And uh, the church as the mystical body of Christ is ultimately subject to him the, um, and his purposes. So you see in the Code of Canon Law, for example, the Code of Canon Law, this is much more of an example. This is not exhaustive, it's just an example. In Canon 209, it talks about two specific circumstances under which um, the presumption is in favor of a person having the jurisdiction necessary, even though he doesn't really know whether he does or not. He's making a presumption here. Those two examples that are given, just by way of example, they're not exhaustive, as I say. They don't say, okay, uh, 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 supply jurisdiction is limited to those specific things. No, it doesn't say that. But it does specifically allow for it in those two, those cases, where a priest does not know whether he has the jurisdiction necessary. In a case like that, if someone asked him, for example, to absolve him of sins and confession, uh, administer the sacrament of penance to him, ordinarily a priest, let's say a priest is from the Diocese of Tucson, Arizona, and he's traveling through Cincinnati, he comes to visit some friends at a church, he hasn't applied for jurisdiction from the Bishop of Cincinnati. He's just visiting. Somebody comes up to him and says, Father, can you hear my confession? That's a different matter than the one I just mentioned, because there the priest knows he doesn't have jurisdiction. But the person who asks him thinks he's a priest. Of course he can. So, right? That also is love. But the other case that I just mentioned, get back on track here, is where, let's say the priest knew he was going to be going through Cincinnati, and he told the bishop of the diocese, if I'm going to be in your diocese from this date to this date, and he comes to the last day of his uh, date, and he doesn't know whether the jurisdiction granted was inclusive of the date or ended on that midnight when that date started, you know. And so he said, oh, I shouldn't ask that. That's interesting. And here I am now. And I'm wondering, you know, can I hear confessions for these people here? Uh, you know what the church says? The law itself allows that. It says this. In that case, he assumed that he does. And not in, in the presuming that he does, he does. The church says he presumes that he does. And by the very fact that he has a presumption that he does, 
he can sure of it. He does have jurisdiction. No question about it. He's absolving those people. Interesting. The mind of the church in these things. Father, okay. is that the common error part of that? No, that is uh, the, the question. Positive of, and probable uh, doubt, I think. Probable doubt, yeah. yeah. The common error would be where the penitent comes up and says, hey, Father, can you write a confession? And the priest knows he doesn't have jurisdiction, but the priest who asked him. Would yeah. it be wrong in that case for the priest to hear his confession? The, the code of canon law says he can do so. Okay. I didn't know if it was, it would be wrong on the priest's part, but still a valid confession for the penitent, but okay. The code says he can do that. Okay. It says it's not doubtful, it's, it's certain. Okay. Because the penitent did not know it asked him at all, sincerity. Mm -hmm. And again, why? Because the supreme law of the church's salvation sins. I mean, you see how the church thinks. Mm -hmm. That's very important. Mm -hmm. That's what we call Catholic tradition. The church is manifesting how the church thinks, not how John Salsa thinks. <laughs> His accusation that that, like the common error and the positive and probable doubt, don't apply if it's the divine law as opposed to ecclesiastical law. He was talking about appointing bishops specifically, since that was a papal right given by our Lord to St. Peter. And since it was divine law, supply jurisdiction wouldn't allow for Well, that. again, as I say, he's not denying there is such a thing as supply jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. He's just saying it doesn't apply there. And, and again, I mean, we're maybe jumping ahead a little bit here. But I, I would just say to him, well, uh, John, uh, the fact is the, the church herself is the one who tells us her understanding of all these things. And if you go back to the Council of Nicaea, is that significant? The Council of Nicaea is it significant? Was there any real authority in the Council? Of Nicaea? <laughs> yeah. So if you start reading the canons of the Council of Nicaea, the provisions for the governing of the Church, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea explicitly states. That if a bishop of a diocese dies, that the bishops of the surrounding dioceses or provinces would get together and they must nominate and consecrate a successor and put him in place as actual bishop of the diocese. And afterwards notify Rome what they had done. And this situation prevailed literally for hundreds of years, probably even into the 7th and 8th centuries. I mean, this was the official statement of the, of the Council of Nicaea. Now, if he wants to argue that point, he's not arguing with you or me, he's arguing with Council of Nicaea. I mean, he can take it up with our Lord when he sees him. But that's how the Council of Nicaea settles. So then our point would just be, eventually if Rome gets all sorted out, then we would just tell them what we did after. Yeah, you can notify them. You can notify them now, but I'm not really, but they wouldn't care. No. <laughs> uh, but the point is, uh, they had the authority to act. Okay, there was no question. They had the authority to act on that question. Not only that, there's one thing that we will never do, and we will consecrate bishops, and we have precedents for that in the history of the church, their tradition. We don't appoint them as his diocese. What is remarkable about the case that I just mentioned is that the bishops actually 
assumed a kind of jurisdiction necessary to appoint them to the head of, be the head of dioceses, which is pretty interesting. You know? It's one thing to consecrate a man a bishop, it's another thing to appoint him and afford him ordinary jurisdiction over a territory and so on. But that's what the Council of the said had to be done. So again, I mean, he finds himself at variance with the actual practice of the church. Now, I say that this prevailed for hundreds of years. It actually prevailed right on through the 1300s um, in times of necessity, because uh, you know there's a very, very famous case. Uh, I forget what book died. And the cardinals, mostly French cardinals, could not agree on a successor. And so a year went by, two years went by, almost three years went by, and they had not elected a successor. Did the church just kind of poof, vanish? No, of course not. The church is the church, right? The church is no less the church when there is a pope and when there isn't a pope. How many times has it been that there's no pope in history on the face of the earth? How many times? As many times as the Pope has died. <laughs> yeah, which is how many times? I mean, if you want to count Francis, uh, 264, five times, right? I mean, that's a lot of times. The church is carrying on, whether it's for a week or a year or going on for three years. Because the authority is in the church and it remains there. You know? The church doesn't, doesn't actually diminish when a Pope dies. Doesn't the church still every bit of the church has ever been the power that Christ gave the apostles? It's invested in the church. So um, there was a time during the life of a time of St. Thomas Aquinas. I think it was during his lifetime, it was in the 13th century. When the Pope died, the cardinals were so at odds with each other that they could not agree to a Pope. Almost three years went by. Now you think, okay, well, that's. It's like 600 years. No, that's 12. That's that's 900 years or so after the Council of Nicaea. Well, you know what they think? Bishops did what they were ordered to do by the Council of Nicaea. This was even after it was considered to be uh, required to have papal mandate. Um, the bishops would get together, convene. They would choose a worthy candidate, they would consecrate him, and they would appoint him as a bishop of diocese. We're talking about the 1200s, that was St. Thomas Aquinas. So this is a matter of historical record. So Mr. Salsa is a lawyer, I don't expect to be a historian, but he should be able to check on these things because he understands there's such a thing as precedence in law. Uh, and he should realize that that has a great value. <laughs> um, in other words, how the church understands and applies their own law. But what's important to her? Um, now, you might find this of interest on the same on the same question, by the way, since we're talking about it, we kind of leapfrogged ahead a little bit. But you, that's good because we're getting down the meat and potatoes of what he's saying here. Okay, the things he's saying. But look at this. I say, good. Let's talk about that. I wish you were here. Um, <laughs> We should get him on what Catholics believe. <laughs> you know, I'd love to see a debate. <laughs> I think that he would be a. Uh, Tom can handle him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Charlie can handle him. That's what Charlie. 
true. Die, but the new baby could handle him, uh, honestly, yeah. at that point. <laughs> um, you know, in 1951, uh, Pope Pius the, for some reason, it all kind of runs together in my mind at this point. I'm getting, uh, it might have been 53, but it, it was actually uh, a, a decree of the Holy Office, which is the Pope, because the Pope is actually the prefect of the Holy Office. It doesn't exist anymore. In fact, the only vestige of the what was known as the Holy Office, the the highest of the congregations of, of the Curia of Rome, the government under the Pope, the only vestige of that went from being the congregation for the doctrine of faith to being the dicastery now for the doctrine of faith, which Francis just appointed, for which Dan, Francis just appointed this Fernandez to be the head. You probably don't recognize the significance of that. Probably, we probably should talk about that with him. Because it's all part of the civil church that he's creating before our very eyes. Which is not the Catholic Church. It is the anti-Catholic Church that he's actually creating. But anyway, so now you have this creature of Francis, really, who's like a clone of Francis, who's been appointed to be the supreme watchdog of orthodoxy of the Catholic faith throughout the world. Uh, the man who's best known for writing the book, Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing. That's his flagship book. It's, it's pretty disgusting. You hear read excerpts of it. You, read. you said he wrote it for teenagers. I would love teenagers read that. This is this man now, and all of the Francis' appointments are all pro LGBT. And this is what the new Central Church is all about. It's all about the acceptance of that. Anyway, we'll get off the track here. But to think that the Holy Office had been so completely uh, gutted that it's been turned into this travesty is just inconceivable. Um, but the Holy Office under Pope Pius XII was reading the Holy Office of the Church. And it really was the mainstay of the orthodoxy of the, of the faith. Well, Pius XII, as the prefect of the Holy Office, had issued a decree in which he said he, he, he leveled a new uh, excommunication, specialissimo modo reserved to the Holy See. See, there are different forms of, ex of excommunication, different levels. The most serious level of excommunication whereby one is automatically excommunicated just by doing what he does. He doesn't even need to be named or denounced or cited or informed. What he does is such a serious crime. He is automatically excommunicated. And in this case, excommunicated so severely that only the Pope can lift the excommunication. That's what it means to say, most specially reserved the special manner reserved to the Holy See itself. That's a very serious crime. If you go up to the Code of Canada Law, you'll find there are a handful of not just sins, crimes against the Church that are reserved specialissima modo to the Holy See itself. An excommunication, automatic, automatic excommunication to uh, attack the Blessed Sacrament, to 
try to assassinate the Pope. I mean, we're talking about things like that. They're crimes. Uh, that you have this highest level censure of automatic excommunication, was especially reserved for the Pope himself. Well, Pope Pius XII added to that list anyone who would consecrate a bishop and name him, that is to say appoint him, uh, to like the head of the diocese or a given jurisdiction without the mandate of the Holy See. And that this would be uh, apply not only to the man who did the consecrating, but to the man who was consecrated. So he added that uh, through the Holy Office as a um, one of those most specially reserved automatic excommunications. What's surprising about that is that it was added only in the 1950s. But some people say, you mean it wasn't like that before? The answer is actually no. And they ask, well, what was it like before? What was the penalty for doing that before? Go back to the old code of canon law before the 1950s. And the penalty for doing that was to be suspended of the Venice and can incur an irregularity. It wasn't even an excommunication. And you might say, well, why would the church in the past not have punished that so severely. And why did Pope Pius XII change it? Both those questions are really worth asking and answering. The church, in the fact, in the past, had not automatically excommunicated because by imposing the penalty of suspending someone on Divinis means he couldn't function. It was like he was put on ice. And the reason why the church chose that path is because that gave the church the chance to investigate what had actually happened. And if they found what happened was something worthy of it, they excommunicated it. But it wasn't an automatic excommunication. That kind of shows, again, the mind of the church for all those centuries, that she indicated that there was something worth investigating to see if there was some justification. <laughs> you know, why would Pope Pius XII have suddenly uh, brought down this automatic excommunication, specialissimo modo uh, reserved to the Holy See? He himself said so. He explained that. The reason why he introduced that is because of what is happening to the church in China, where Mao Zedong, the communists, have taken over. He has explicitly said that that was his motivation in leveling that automatic segregation. Because the communists were presuming to go ahead and name and have their own bishops consecrated. And there were bishops who were willing to consecrate for them. Fast forward to Francis now, what he's doing, okay? And it's kind of scary. But Papias XII actually wrote an encyclical called the Postulorum Principis, but that came out in 1958. I think his original decree came in 1951, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was 51. And in 1958, this is the last year of his reign, he issued an encyclical in which he actually explained that excommunication. And his explanation, again, is, is very instructive. I mean, if you want to be a student of the, the church and the 
the understanding of, of these things, you'd have to, uh, you know, you'd have to be, know this, you'd have to examine it. Pius the Twelfth, and you can get this online, you can get it in English, English translation of it. So it's readily available to you to see what he says. And he says the, the excommunication, the automatic excommunication, applies when a bishop consecrates another without the without the uh, authority or without the naming, the, the mandate, mandatum of the Holy See. The, the Holy See has designated this individual and said he should be consecrated to bishop. Generally, the man who's designated to be consecrated ordinarily has the right to choose the bishops who he wants to be the ones who consecrate. Um, the point is uh, that they can't proceed without that mandate, ordinarily. Um, but Pope Pius XII, in that encyclical on this very subject, talking about the church in China and what was going on there and why he introduced that new excommunication, used a very interesting expression. Again, it's a legal expression. He said, a bishop who consecrates another bishop without a mandate from the Holy See, contra omne fas. And you can look that up yourself. You know, you don't have to be a Latin scholar to look that up. Contra means against. Omne means all or every. And fas means all Catholic practice. Fas, F-A-S, actually has the significance of all Catholic precedent. Contra omne fas. So a bishop who acts that way against all Catholic precedent and outside all the rule of Catholic law is the one who's excommunicated for doing this. That's what he said himself, the one who, who actually wrote that excommunication into law. He told me what his intent was. That's very significant. Contra omne fas. Why? Because, again, the church was having bishops consecrated other bishops without mandates from the Holy See for hundreds of years. That's not contra omne fas. But I'll tell you what would be contra omne fas is if a bishop were to consecrate a non Catholic bishop. Has always been condemned, never been approved. There have been times when bishops have consecrated other Catholic priests, bishops, and the church investigated and approved it was the right thing to do, but during the Arian heresy. <laughs> but never has the church approved consecrating a non Catholic, as Archbishop Took did. That is truly contra omne fas. <laughs> and that is why we can't have nothing to do with it. So, Father Wood. Pope Pius XII's mandate, since it has the Contra Omne Fast, the Council of Nicaea, that provision that they allowed, still would apply? Well, it is not Contra Omne Fast if the Church actually did it and approved it. Right. I mean, by definition, it can't be Contra Omne Fast. Okay. This is precedent for it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would say that, yes, um, the Church's own history shows that there is precedent for consecrating bishops without the uh, mandate of the Holy See. That there have been, in fact, hundreds, thousands of bishops consecrated that way, and with the approval of the Church, actually. Uh, so I, I think he's overreaching, uh, just assuming that, no, they couldn't apply to that. So, what would fall under supply jurisdiction? Well, 
generally speaking, you know, as I mentioned, to be a traditional Catholic, you have to follow Catholic tradition, which means practice. You have to do what the church says is always and everywhere necessary for a Catholic to do. Believe to be a Catholic must never do what the church says is utterly incompatible, like control nefas, which is never, never compatible with being a Catholic. It is always condemned. But then there are those, then there's a rather large body of things which the church has shown by her special law, governing missionary territories, for example, uh, or, or prevailing in times of crisis when she herself is exercised to judgment and approved of certain things and said this was the right thing to do. Like, as I mentioned, Father Pro, concealing the Blessed Sacrament of the Saborium in the cupboard of somebody's private home. <laughs> I mean, even to this day, I mean, under the circumstances today, I would feel that I could never be justified doing that under the curse. But I can see uh, circumstances under which I feel it necessary to do that. Well, he did. And the church holds him up as a great example. Yeah. I'm sure Mr. Salsa would find a great fault with him. <laughs> but I don't think other people would mind. Care. <laughs> So again, what would fall under the supply jurisdiction of the church? What we do in trying to follow the traditional churches, be very, very careful to see if there is precedent, what the church has always condemned, what the church has always required, and what example we, we see from church history as far as how the church judged what her Catholic people did. Uh, for example, I mean, the question of marriage, you know, the church has said that the Catholic people have a right to marry. And uh, they have even the right to marry badly, <laughs> to marry the wrong person, but they have the obligation to live with the consequences of their choice. But they have the right to receive the sacrament of matrimony. We see also what has happened to the concept of, of the sacrament of the battery in the Novus Ordo, uh, where priests are routinely advising people to live together before marriage to see if they're compatible, uh, use birth control, follow their conscience, and on and on and on, and then the annulments, which completely undermine the concept of the sanctity of marriage law. And so we see, again, from historical precedent, that the church has herself provided has provided ways to uh, to marry. Uh, even again, you know, even in the church's law itself. I mean, uh, Canon 1098 in the, in the law says, you know, you know marry before an authorized priest to witness. But then you keep reading, read Canon 1099, and it says, but in those circumstances when a Catholic would not reasonably expect to see a Catholic priest, an authorized Catholic priest within a month that the Catholic can get together with two witnesses and make the marriage vows in front of the two witnesses and be married. And then solemnize the marriage by any priest who, who comes along within the next month. So, I mean, the church has actually thought about all these things. She's been through the mill. Uh, so uh, she really is about the Holy Mother Church. You know? 
and so far as she realized, look, you know, even people can decide. So when you say, well, what, what would be covered by it? Well, you look back in history, see, well, what did the church herself say, you know, uh, was permissible or even laudable during times of crisis? And there's a very rich history in the church. There hasn't been a year that's gone by where there hasn't been a crisis somewhere, right? Caused by some emperor or petty prince or whatever. I think that there was even something in his tape where he talks about um, interdict. Mm -hmm. He says, well, gee, you know, people being died to suffer us, you know. Well, that's historical. That's happened. I mean, there was a period of eight years when the English, British were denied the sacraments because of something that they, the Pope they did, you know. Well, that, that is true. You know, the public administration of the sacraments. It didn't mean they were not allowed, the priests were not allowed to administer the sacraments to them, absolutely, right? Uh, I think his understanding of that is faulty to begin with. Um, but, um, But the, the very argument he, he uses is kind of antithetical. As though he just blows off the idea, well, you can do without the sacrament all those years, you know. Sure says it's fine. You know? That was considered a very heavy punishment. Now he wants to make that basically the norm for everybody. <laughs> you know? Again, I, I, the mentality just puzzles me greatly. Um, what would be beyond the allowances from supply jurisdiction? There's a question here. Well, you know, obviously, supply jurisdiction cannot be invoked in everything. Uh, again, what we, we, as the Society of St. Pius V, at least, have done, the Tooks have not done this, and Pius X, you can, you can argue a question about it. But we have explicitly uh, made it very clear that we do not invoke ordinary jurisdiction or even delegated jurisdiction. And we will not appoint uh, a consecrated bishop and make him bishop of North America or even Gary, Indiana <laughs> or even Norwood. Uh, that we do not claim the power to do that. Supply jurisdiction cannot give you the power. Now, the Turks tried that. They tried. Turk bishops tried to divide the United States into, into half, and everybody each east of the Mississippi was subject to one of the Turk bishops, and everybody west of the Mississippi was subject to the other one of the Turk bishops. They actually sent notification to everybody that you had so much time to make your submission or you were excommunicated. And, uh, you know, I mean, anybody with an ounce of sense said, no, you know, this is just Turk being Turks. Uh, and, uh, you know, nobody took that seriously. Uh, took that they didn't, 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 nobody took that seriously. <laughs> so, um, in, in any case, um, so there are definitely things that are beyond pale of supply jurisdiction, but you notice that supply jurisdiction is primarily given for the salvation of souls and for the need of the souls to be saved, which means we're talking about, again, matters of faith, what they are to believe, such as preaching the gospel, where is needed, right? Again, we have example. We have the example of that during the time of Honorius I. We just recently celebrated the, the feast day of 
Pope St. Leo II. You might have noticed that. It might have caught your eye when you saw that. You said, oh, that's the Pope who presided over the council that excommunicated Honorius. He's the Pope who had to handle that hot potato. And he's the one who issued the excommunication of Honorius and condemned him as a heretic. Remember that? Leo II, Saint Leo II. In the, in the universal calendar of the Roman Catholic Church, St. Leo the Son. And that's what he had to do. That's really hard, I'm sure. But, um, so, um, you know, for example, we have never and would never claim the authority to to uh, choose a pope. Again, there are other groups that have, you know, descended into that madness saying, well, we'll just, there's nobody else to do it, so we, we just got to decide to do it ourselves. So we'll just name a pope. And uh, who wants to be Pope here? Okay, raise your hand. <laughs> I mean, it only comes down to that. <laughs> so definitely there are things without, outside the, the realm of supply jurisdiction. We know that very well. But we also know very well the things that are within the realm of supply jurisdiction. We see the church in her law explicitly, again, empowering an excommunicated priest who has no jurisdiction, is not even a member of the church, to grant an absolution because of the power of orders that he has received to those who are dying and in need of absolution. I mean, the church just says that. The church says not that, well, you can try it. No, the church doesn't say that. The church says that we grant the jurisdiction to absolve, even to the most unworthy minister. This is the way the church thinks. So again, you know, the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls. We've seen that that applied time and time again by the church in the administration of her sacraments in particular. Uh, Canon 2263, uh, paragraphs 1, 2, maybe 3. Canon 2263, uh, Canon 2261, I don't have my clear canon They're right next to it on the same page, you can read them. But they talk about when a Catholic can go to an excommunicated minister to receive sacraments if there's no alternative. Now, this has to do with somebody who's actually a validly ordained priest, right? It doesn't have to do with somebody who is like an Orthodox outside the Catholic Church, like a, a, an apostate falling away, but it has to do with somebody excommunicated for what, some reason for malfeasance, right? But in case of necessity, the Church recognizes if the need is there for the salvation of the soul, the Church grants, the Church grants jurisdiction. Again, it's written into our very law. There's no doubt about it. There's no question about it. Um, so yes, there are things that are definitely beyond the reach of supply jurisdiction. There are definitely things that are within the reach and for which supply jurisdiction precisely exists in order to empower the priest to act. Are all of our sacraments valid? I believe so, yes. Are they listed? I believe so, yes. I believe they are. I believe that whatever we've done here has been motivated and is within the realm of Catholic precedent. I don't think we've done anything contra omne fops that the Church in the past has approved, you know? Uh, even, even in questions of marriage, for example, uh, which, again, the Church has uh, explicitly in, in her own code of canon law, she states a hard, fast, cold principle, and then she says, 
However, it's these circumstances that you know uh, the church grants the necessary um, authority to act invalidly. Um, but a question arises. For example, there's an impediment. There's a uh, an invalidating impediment against you marrying a Protestant. There's an invalidating impediment against you. There's a, a, a dirament, an invalid, invalidating impediment. Invalidating impediment against you marrying a non-baptized person, like a Muslim, Jew, or something like that. And ordinarily, that would make it invalid for you to marry them without a dispensation. Again, the church does grant that dispensation at times. And you look at the moral theologians who are approved by the church and they explain under what circumstances the church was accustomed to grant that dispensation. Nowadays, you go to a novice or a clergyman and they say, ah, don't worry about that. Yeah. I don't even ask them. It's not even worth asking. But where would we get off? Well, again, you consult the approved moral theologians of the church and they explain and they give you examples to, to back up what they say. The church customarily and historically gave dispensations under these circumstances for these impediments. And there's a very reasonable way to proceed. No one can argue it's contra omne pas, that's for sure. Father, would you say that even the Novosorto people in the Novosorto church themselves, would they say that, I mean, some of our sacraments they would say are invalid, but like, <clears throat> Like our mass, they would say that it's valid but illicit. Correct? Is that? Who knows what okay. they would say? Some would say that. Some would say that. Okay. Yeah. That's coming. But again, they're, they're speaking out of ignorance. Yeah. Right. And um, a lot of it has to. It depends on how much authority they're willing to give to the modernists, and to what extent they see that the church is in a state of crisis. Or not. Mm -hmm. If, if like salsa, hey, as long as they say it's okay, it's okay. Just everybody accept it. Mm -hmm. No question. As long as they take that approach, then anybody who, you know, just doesn't get in line and do whatever they their local bishop says at any given moment uh, is, you know, outside the church. <laughs> right. um, of course, I, I know that's wrong. I possibly agree with that. But somebody looks at the church today and says, well, you know, okay, maybe things aren't that great, but they're not that bad. I mean, the, the new Mass is okay. It's pretty Catholic enough for me. The new sacraments, yeah, there's nothing really wrong with them. Then, fine, that's the choice they make. If they're going to put their souls in, in that care, they're going to follow that. But for the Catholic people who actually care enough to look into it and discover it, there's something seriously wrong here. And we can trace it back to what St. Pius X warned us about when he told us about the modernists. And we believe that this is the fulfillment of, what, of his warning. And people who see that, well, they basically have no choice but to act against it, to resist it, and just hold on to the old faith. That's the one thing that constant throughout the church's history, the church has always said the same thing. But in times of crisis and confusion, hold fast to the old religion, hold fast to the old faith, don't change. 
That is absolutely a constant voice of the church going back to St. Paul himself. So, um, I, I don't understand only a reasonable person to take an argument with that. But. In general, does the hierarchy have authority to reform the liturgy? Um, well, reform, you know, has a sense to correct faults and mistakes and errors and problems with liturgy. Anyway, historically, the, the problem is the church is always considered to be, you know, her liturgy to be beautiful and holy. Uh, the church, that's part of the holiness of the church, the liturgy. So the whole idea of saying, we need to reform this liturgy, it's full of errors and mistakes and problems. Um, in the past, you know, you did have Pope Pius V, St. Pius V. Was that a liturgical reform? Yes, it was. What was he reforming? You know what he was reforming? He was reforming the, the various Gallican rites that had cropped up over the previous 200 years with the rise of Protestantism, beginning with Zwingli and, and Huss, all the way to Luther and, and, uh, and Calvin. For that 200 year period, errors had been introduced because there were the Gallican rites that were used in the various provinces and dioceses of Europe, especially north of the Alps, that had been infected by these errors. And so the rites that Pope Pius V reformed were those rites. They were not the universal rites of the church. How did he reform them? By crushing them, by annihilating them. He said any rite of mass that was not more than 200 years old, that had been adopted or developed during the previous 200 years, had to be abandoned. They had to stop using it. And that's how, what did he do to reform it? He, he promulgated the Roman Missal, which was the right of, of the mass of Rome. It had been for all those centuries. He said, this is what you must use now. That was how he reformed it. The idea of reforming a mass rite, which the church had universally used for hundreds of years, and saying, this is very faulty. We can't do this anymore. This is disgraceful. That's completely abhorrent to the Catholic mind. That's absurd. I mean, it's, it's like a, an attack on the church's holiness. So you have to be careful. With, you know, learn what the church really means by reform. Look at her history, but she never took, uh, took a wholesale reform of the rights of the church, of, you know, of, like the Roman Mass. Or, 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 I mean, the whole idea is important. Um, so we have to be careful with not to understand it in a modernist sense. But does the, let's say, the hierarchy, does the Pope <coughs> have the right to reform? various rights that have been corrupted, gone astray? Oh yes, not only does he have the right to do so, he has an absolute obligation. It's a duty of his to do that. And you see, what he did was he imposed what was traditional and rooting out what was not traditional, which is exactly the opposite of what Paul VI did, exactly the opposite. Uh, so the answer to that question would be, well, yes, the hierarchy does have authority. 
did the reformers have the authority to reform the Tridentine Mass to the 1962 Mass? Um, no, you know, they were motivated, they said, by modernist principles. And insofar as they were motivated by modernist principles of liturgy, they have no right to invoke those as a motivation to change the, the Mass. Um, one can argue, were those modernist principles or were they not? And the answer is yes, they were. Now one can prove it from the history of the so-called liturgical reform. Uh, that they were motivated by modernist principles in making those changes. Uh, if they did have the authority to change it, did they order everyone had to replace the 1951 rubrics with the 1962 rubrics? Again, no. You know, this, you see, we have to realize that the so-called reform or the deformation of the liturgy was a process. And the whole process from beginning to end was animated, motivated by modernist principles. They knew what they wanted to achieve as their end product. Whether you look at 1960, 62, 63, 65, you had steps along the way, changes, 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 gradually changing and transforming until finally in Vatican II, they, they let the cat out of the bag and said, a wholesale reform. They weren't even talking about doing away with the traditional mass. They just wanted a separate new rite. That was the original plan. But by the time Paul VI put it into effect, in the years after Vatican II, it was interpreted as a wholesale ban on the traditional mass everywhere. That's what we meant that we were ordained. We went out. That's what we were told. It's the one thing you can't do. So, Considering that revolutionary process, all the way from 1948 till 1968, when the new mass began to appear, that was a revolutionary process based on modernist principles. It had no authority behind it, no Catholic authority behind it whatsoever. Father, uh, did Pope Pius XII, I was reading Father Chicago's book, The Work of Human Hands, about the liturgical movement and then comparing the masses. And he was talking about how those heads of the liturgical movement, I forget what, Father Bowie or something like that, uh, were advisors to Benini and Paul VI was, was fans of them, but they were acting long before Paul VI. They were acting like in this period. Like, I mean, it made it sound like 1955. So, yeah. Paul, Pius XII. Were they too. condemned back then? Or how did they get to the point where they... Well, even Pius Parsh, I mean, back even in the like, 1930s Germany. Uh, was bringing in modernist principles. So, no, they've been very active for quite some time. Uh, in fact, uh, Don Garanger was aware of their activity, even back in the 1800s. And they, they knew what they were working toward. Um, so, you know, were they condemned? Well, Pius X condemned them. Uh, he, he, started, see, he cited liturgy as one of the explanations of the modernist concept of liturgy. You hear an example of that in the Encyclopedia Shandhi, you know, specifically. And um, so, no, they, they knew that these things were taking place. There were a lot of things that happened during the World Wars that were very, very, shall we say, modernistic, as it was a kind of a breakdown in authority. You know. 
and uh, there were centuries leveled against them, but um, they basically just blew them past them. Even Paul VI, even Paul VI, but in 1960, 1970, I think it was, he, he issued a statement about the new order finally coming out and being finished. He said, it is our hope that this will bring to an end the period of experimentation, which has happened often against our will. He even said it. Like he had no control. This whole period of, ex of, of, of experimentation was going on, he said, often uh, contra, uh, contra uh, against our our wishes that all this experimentation is going on. Very weak. You know? So, no. Uh, this was this was rammed down the church's throat. Uh, the modernists did it. Why does St. Pius V have the right to reject the 1962 Mass? Again, it's part of the whole process. It's part of the modernist process of change. It's part of the revolution. You see, all those, you look at the 1962 changes, say, oh, gee, compare the 1965 changes. 62 looks pretty good. Compared to 67, 68, 70, oh my goodness. The 1962 changes look really innocent. And then you realize, wait a minute, the whole process was motivated by certain principles that they enunciated at the very beginning. <laughs> this is why this has to change. And these were the same principles they invoked every single step of the way. And you realize it's not so much the individual changes, it's the principles of that these changes establish as, as though they, they're, they're not Catholic principles, they're contrary to very Catholic ideas of worship. Um, and you notice all the changes basically were kind of feeding this modernist idea Let's change according to the people that appeals to the people, that appeals to the people, right? It going to, went along with the modernist idea of faith beginning with, with your individual faith experience and what's meaningful to you. The whole thing. If you haven't read Pope Pius XI's Pascendi on the church, it's a short thing, number 23, the church. And later, actually, 25 also, he talks about uh, development of dogma. So, uh, and, and he even talks about vegetarian, the modernist concept of vegetarian. Those are all in like 23, 25, 26 paragraphs of his encyclical. If you haven't read those, it'd be worth a read. If you haven't read yet Francis's statement uh, of 2015, in which he declared the establishment of the Synodal Church. You should read that document. Because it, it really uh, spells out for him exactly what his goal is. His goal is to complete Vatican II. Uh, and Vatican II is the finish yet. Revolution is still not finished. That's why he was put in place. And he sees it that way. And that's why he's putting all these people in charge right now. Because he sees that his purpose is to complete Vatican II, bring about the, the church as envisioned by Vatican II, which is his synodal church. You know, I'm sorry, I actually have an online conference session right now. Oh. I'm sorry, but, but that's probably good news. <laughs> yeah.
as the neighbors <laughs> you've escaped. But I hope this is somewhat helpful. 